You know, it's pledge drive season. It's Slate Podcasts. And later this episode, you'll be hearing about why you should support our show by joining Slate Plus. And then after that, a counterproposal to convince you, if you are a Slate Plus listener, to immediately unsubscribe. No, I'm not going to do that, though I am committed to fairness and balance. If you would rather skip this whole pledge drive thing, just join Slate Plus now. You won't hear any of it. Okay, here's our show. It's Monday, July 3rd, 2018 from Slate. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Chipotle, you thought it was a place to get a burrito. It's not. It's also a lifestyle brand. Its CEO on a conference call with investors, Chris Brandt, said that Chipotle wanted to become not just a lifestyle brand, but a purpose-driven lifestyle brand. I suppose there are lifestyle brands that are not also purpose-driven, a meandering lifestyle brand, maybe a hacky sack. Maybe that would be one. I would think Chipotle's mission would be something like, we'll feed you and not get you sick. But apparently I was setting my sights too low in mere E. coli avoidance. Chipotle is not the only slinger of hash that aspires to being a lifestyle brand. The New York Times reported today that IHOP, Blue Apron, and Pizza Hut have all laid claims to being lifestyle brand. Now, I use Blue Apron, and they kind of are a lifestyle brand. Two days a week, that is what we're doing. We're cooking Blue Apron. That has a great impact on my lifestyle. I can't say I feel the need to go back to Barack Obama's 2004 DNC speech and edit in, you know, we have gay friends in red states and pray to an awesome God in blue states. We eat hello fresh in red states and unpack Blue Apron in the blue states. I'm not at that point yet, but Blue Apron seems a little lifestyle-y. More than some food, more than Pizza Hut, lifestyle brand. Here are, I'm sure, the top three reasons to eat in a Pizza Hut. Reason one, I want a pizza. Reason two, it was the nearest place with pizza. Reason three, since the old pizza yurt closed down, is the only other place in town that sells pizza. What would the Pizza Hut lifestyle be? Guy who loves pizza, who doesn't like good pizza, Sorry, Jack, but I ain't down with your Ben Folds 5 or your Jackson 5. I prefer Maroon 5. That's how we hoodies roll. We like the thing, but not the really good version of the thing. Ma, you don't listen to me anymore. I don't want turkey on Thanksgiving. It's like I don't even exist. I'm a hoodie now. And I ask that you respect that. Oh, where did we lose him, Norman? I'll tell you where. It's that damn Pizza Hut. We lost him to the hut. My favorite one is IHOP, such a distinctive lifestyle brand that they changed to IHOP for a week and a half back there. I like to think that, as with any real subculture, there will be inevitable fracturing, so the boysenberry syrup folk won't even know where to begin with those strawberry syrup fanatics, and then... You'll hear Maple saying, guys, guys, we're on that same syrup rack there at the corner of the table. We're more similar than different. And isn't the real enemy Denny's? Oh, save your Denny's pandering. Sounds exactly like someone with maple privilege would say. Many people think syrup and all they think is maple. Like maple's the only syrup. It's like we've been erased. Actually, hold on. I kind of do think IHOP's a lifestyle. If you told me someone eats in an IHOP three to seven days a week, I will probably be able to make some good guesses about their lifestyle. And I like the waitresses at IHOP, and the pancakes are good. And with locations in Kuwait, Mexico, the Philippines, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, St. Croix, the UAE, Guatemala, Canada, and Bahrain, it truly is the international house of pancakes. 
Can't they just be happy with that? On the show today, I spiel about a lawsuit against Harvard. But first, to a slightly lesser school, Emory University. I can degrade Emory because I went there. And when I was there, I was taught by Alan Abramowitz. He's one of the foremost scholars of the American electorate. And he is here to share your scholarship with you, free of charge. you know anything about politics these days, a phrase that explains our situation is negative partisanship. And that is the idea that while we might have belief or adherence in the party to which we belong, we really, really, really resent the party to which we don't belong. And this has been examined and this has been explored, but in a new book called The Great Alignment, Race Party Transformation and the Rise of Donald Trump, Professor Alan Abramowitz gets into it more or in a different way than others have and explains why we're so negatively partisan. Hello, Professor Abramowitz. How are you? Hi there. Glad to be with you. Absolutely. So, You blame the people themselves as much as the parties. I think other pundits blame some nefarious doings of our political actors for causing partisanship. You say, no, it's us. Yeah, I I think that uh, we all have to look in the mirror if we want to really understand who is primarily responsible for the growing negativity. It's because the public supporters of the two major parties are increasingly divided. And we're increasingly divided uh, in a number of different ways. We're, We're divided in terms of our racial and ethnic makeup, and we're divided in terms of our political outlook, our policy preferences, ideology, and so on. We're siloed in the media, uh, the media we consume, where we sort based on geography. We live in neighborhoods and go to schools with each other. And I think that uh, popular political writers say in ways we didn't 50 years ago. Is that true? We, We weren't sorted as ideologically sorted in, say, neighborhoods? That's definitely true. Mm -hmm. If you look at the geographic divide in the country right now, you see that the percentage of Americans who live in places where one party really dominates at the county level, you can even look at it at the precinct level, people who are surrounded by others who agree with them is much greater now than it was 10, 20, 30 years ago. It's been increasing pretty steadily. That's just one of the sort of symptoms of this growing division. Now, agree with them in terms of party, because at the same time, or probably a little bit before, there's been an ideological sorting of the party. So I could understand why in the 1970s, Democrats could live cheek by jowl with Republicans, because it wasn't so clear that that meant conservatives living with liberals. But now it pretty much does. That's right. Um, The parties pretty much stand for the same thing everywhere. Uh, Whereas in the past, you had parts of the country where the Democrats were pretty conservative and the Republicans were pretty liberal. But... Uh, When you look around the country today, you don't find very many moderate to liberal Republicans anywhere. You don't find very many conservative Democrats anymore. Right. You even had a statistic that in 1972, which was a time I was alive, though just barely, moderate and liberal whites outnumbered conservative whites in the Republican Party. I'll say that again. Since there there are no liberal... (laughs) liberal whites in the Republican Party pretty much anymore. You added the moderate and the liberal white people and the Republicans. It was more than the conservative white people in the Republican Party. Amazing to me. That's right. And of course, it varied across the country. So, But there were large parts of the country where moderate to liberal whites were the by far the largest group within the Republican Electoral Coalition. And, and now that's not true anywhere. I want to I get to Trump because there's 
excellent parts of your book that explain his rise and that phenomenon. But I just want to ask about some meta questions about negative partisanship. Is it worse than partisanship? Is it worse to hate the other guy more than to love your party? I think it has some very serious negative consequences. If we support our party because mainly we like our own party and its leaders and what it stands for, but we don't really dislike the opposing party, or at least we don't hate the opposing party, then it's much easier to work together with members of the opposing party and to work across party lines and to build bipartisan coalitions. But when you have this deep dislike and distrust of those on the other side, it makes it almost impossible to work together. When you have a situation like we often have in this country of divided party control of government, that leads to stalemate. It leads to gridlock. Whereas in the past, that wasn't necessarily true. You could actually accomplish things even with divided government because Democrats and Republicans would work together. You could build coalitions from the center out. Uh, You can't really do that anymore because there isn't much of a center left. Right. I was just thinking, let's say... Democrats didn't have as much negative partisanship as Republicans, and they wanted to work with the other party. I mean, they'd be working with a party that was very, very far from them ideologically. Right. At a certain point, um, maybe unilateral negative partisanship is worse or stupider than just general negative partisanship. Maybe once one party goes far to the extreme, and and I'm not saying it's just Republicans, and you have plenty of uh, evidence that both parties have moved away from the center. But once one party goes far from the extreme, the other really has to respond in kind or be decimated. Well, that's right. I, I think that, in, in fact, the evidence suggests that that really the Republican Party has moved much further to the right and began to move further to the right sooner than the Democrats moved to the left and has certainly moved further to the right on many issues than the Democrats have moved to the left in recent years. But the movement of the Republican Party to the right, I think, has spurred this shift to the left among Democrats because, as you say, What's the point of remaining in the middle if there's, there's no one that you can work with on the other side? The advantage of being in the center is the opportunity to build bipartisan coalitions. That's not the case anymore. Um, you have a lot of research in your book about the correlation between a vote for president and a vote for other down-ballot positions, mm-hmm. and that correlation has increased. So now it's right. much less likely that a voter anywhere would vote for a Republican president and a Democratic senator, Right. Right. And that's something that used to be very common. Very common, right. Ticket splitting, you know, especially in the 1970s and 80s, was very prevalent. If you look at the Senate elections in 2016, the, the party that won the presidential election in a state won the Senate election in every single state that had a Senate election. Yeah. There was not one exception to that. that that's, that's the first time that I as a, know of that that's ever happened. But then why is it that the out party, the party not of the president, still has this major advantage in off-year elections? Right. So there's still this, uh, you know, big midterm election effect that Republicans benefited from in 2010 and 14. It just still seems to be the case that the voters in the out party are more energized and more motivated to turn out. The negative feelings that seem to drive our politics today are usually stronger when you're out of power. Yeah, uh, when, you, when your party's not in the White House. And, and we're seeing that this year, that Democrats are very energized. And what's energizing them primarily is their um, dislike of Donald Trump and everything he stands for. It, it looks like, you know, based on what we've seen in special elections and, and turnout in the primaries and, and what the polling suggests right now, both national and in some of the individual contests, that 
know, Democrats are poised to, to make some pretty big gains in the midterm elections. I don't think that speaks very well of the nature of man or our democracy, by the way. <laughs> Do you? Well, you, the, actually, our, you know, we're about the only country, the only democracy in the world that has midterm elections. Yeah. It's almost a kind of a built-in check on the president, you know, whether you like that or not. Depends on whether you agree with the president. You've basically got two years to get your agenda enacted, and after that, it's pretty much over. And Republicans have been struggling even to get their agenda enacted in the first two years. Yeah. Uh, You have a really interesting analysis of what was driving the passion for Donald Trump and uh, it was often explained that this was the this was economic worries. But you take this major survey, you find measures of misogyny and racism, and you found that those are extremely correlative, which shouldn't be a shock. But right. when you put it, when you plotted it against how much better, say, George Bush did against Al Gore in terms of white people who were driven by racial animus, and then you compared it to Donald Trump, Trump has set records for that. Yeah. Well, Trump was building on a trend. I mean, um, you had a Republican base that had become increasingly hostile to immigrants and uh, upset about the way the country was changing in in terms of race and, and ethnicity, resentful toward what they perceived to be unfair advantages that minorities were getting. This was something that didn't begin with Trump at all, but Trump was able to exploit that in the, in the Republican primaries and, and really appealed much more directly to those voters. His message was more overtly, you know, anti-immigrant and, and really racist than what we got from other Republicans before him. And it worked. And, and what about misogyny? Yeah, I mean, cer- certainly, uh, I mean, that's correlated also with these racial and ethnic attitudes. So all these, th- these things sort of hang together. Yeah. Trump's uh, appeal included that element of misogyny. And, and uh, also, of course, that was a very important part of his uh, message in attacking Hillary Clinton. One of the main reasons why Republicans came to hate Hillary Clinton to the degree that they did, which really contributed to Trump's ability to unify Republicans, was, you know, misogyny. Yeah, I'm trying to find the graph in the book or the stats in the book. Oh, yeah, here, here it is. In 2000, only 62% of working class whites scoring high on racial resentment voted for George W. Bush over Al Gore. The Republican candidate share increased slightly to 68% in 2004 and 69% in 2008. So in other words, Barack Obama got, I guess, Thirty-one percent of racially resentful, right. <laughs> resentful right. white voters, which is kind of amazing. Whereas Hillary Clinton only got thirteen percent of racially resentful white right. voters. She needed to double her share of racially resentful white voters to win that election and get back to Barack Obama levels. That's crazy. That would have definitely helped her. Maybe not her soul, but her electoral chances. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, in, you know, in 2008, there were other things going on. I think that we were in, the, in a terrible economic downturn, and George W. Bush was very unpopular. So I think that clearly played a major role in, in Obama's ability to hang on to some of those voters yeah. uh, despite his race. Yeah, I, and I also think that – I don't know how we could prove this – 
But it, it leads me to think that there's something to the idea that you can absolutely vote for Barack Obama and still be racist because, you know, sure. something like 30 whatever percent of people did. Sure. Given the baseline reality, everything you're talking about, negative partisanship, where Trump uh, finds his support, is he smart? Is he playing his cards right by essentially, either by design or how it's shaken out, only trying to be popular among the people who like him, really to be loved, beloved by his quote-unquote base and just writing off everyone else? Is that the way to go in this uh, reality? Uh, You know... uh If I was advising him something that's not likely to happen, I certainly would say that that's the wrong way to go. I mean, I I think that that's a mistake. There's no question that that, that's what he's doing. I think it's very intentional. But, you know, the way that Trump won in 2016 was was quite unusual. I would say it's been compared accurately to drawing an inside straight. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he, he pulled off this very narrow win in these uh, in these three swing states in particular you know, in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. And, you know, the, every year as we go forward, the American electorate is becoming increasingly diverse in terms of race and ethnicity. You know, white voters and the Trump base in particular are becoming a declining share of the American population and the American electorate. So it's probably going to be even more difficult for him to pull that off in 2020 than it was in 2016. Alan Abramowitz is the Albin W. Barkley Professor of Political Science at Emory University and is the author of The Great Alignment Race, Party Transformation and the Rise of Donald Trump. Thank you, Professor Abramowitz. Well, thank you very much for inviting me on. Hello, just listeners. I am interrupting the show. Well, am I interrupting? It's my show. I can take it anywhere I want. Here's where I want to take it, to the Slate Plus pledge drive. And I am joined by editorial director of Slate Plus, Gabriel Roth. Do you, do you like to say Gabriel? Sure. Gabri- Gabriel. Ga- not Gabriel. Gabriel. Well, you know, I thought it was the Gabe Fest or the Gab Fest. I, I could put, sure. put the Gab in Gabriel. You, you can. Terrible. So tell me a little. Sell me. Give me the elevator pitch. Tell me about Slate Plus. So Slate Plus members, if you are a Slate podcast fan, you should become a Slate Plus member because Slate Plus members get every episode of Slate Podcast. It has no ads. It's just the pure content. Every episode sure. of the just everyday, uninterrupted sure. goodness with none of the ads. Right. Uh, on many of our other shows, you get extra bonus segments. You get more of the political gab fest, more of Hang Up and Listen, yeah. more of Slate Money. And let me interrupt and sure, say go. there's a nature to the more that you get, which is the last segment is usually revealing about the personalities of the hosts. So in, on the one hand, you could argue that it's the least essential segment, which is good. We should give uh, the public at large, the, the unwashed, unplus masses, all the best stuff. But I find that people who love the podcast the most do want to get a little connection to the hosts and that in the last bonus segment is often where they talk about their own predilections or opinions and feelings that's exactly right there was one 
on the Gab Fest recently where uh, John Dickerson of CBS News' Face the Nation and uh, our, our Supreme Court correspondent, Dahlia Lithwick, mm-hmm. were talking about doing something they had both done, which was moving from Charlottesville to New York and, and in some cases back. And uh, it feels very heartfelt and personal. And if you listen to these shows regularly and you feel a connection to the hosts, joining Slate Plus is a way to deepen and I would say tighten that connection. Yes. On the another similar one. So on The Waves, which used to be my uh, old friends, Double X, they do uh, the is this sexist question as a bonus. And they were debating. Hannah Rosen brought up the fact that uh, when it's really hot, sometimes you'll see women just walking down the street in a bikini and she judges them harshly. But then... Noreen and June kind of talked her out of it or made her mind up. And it was inessential compared to the other things they were talking about, but it was great camaraderie and discussion. And I can't imagine if you're a real fan like I am, I can't imagine you not thrilling to that kind of conversation. I think that's, I think one of the things podcast fans like is there's those little moments on the side of the main discussion where you hear the hosts exchange some Mm -hmm. sort of little personal thing. Uh, And in those extra segments, that's quite often what we go deep in. And listen, when I was at NPR, people used to say, why are you telling me your opinion? We don't care about your opinion. That's not what we listen for. And I know on podcasts to some extent that it is, but maybe not for everyone to every extent. So it is a way, I think Slate Plus is a way to calibrate the listener experience for the type of listener you are. So if anything I've described, oh, a little more content, oh, a little more personality, oh, a little more insight, if any of that sounds appealing in the abstract, then that is exactly why you should uh, join. And I think it's only $35 for your first year. That is exactly what it is. And Gabe, you could always be a step ahead of the law or our algorithms and change your name and identity and constantly get the $35 first year rate if you want to, right? Uh, if you want to spend a lot of effort you could if, the f- if, initial year rate. If, if you want to uh, yeah. renew your, your – change your social security number every year, you, you should can get that $35 That's what I deal yeah. in perpetuity. So if that sounds good to you, you can sign up for Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash gist plus. All right. And now the spiel. I was reading about this lawsuit by Asian Americans against Harvard with fascination. It is a stew of strange bedfellows. The lawyer leading the effort is a guy named Edward Blum, who is a conservative legal strategist. He's a litigant, kind of a professional litigant. He goes around and gets people to uh, pursue his causes. Usually the people that he represents or champions are minimally qualified white students trying to get into state schools that accepted minority students with slightly lower standardized test scores, they claim. But now, and this is interesting, he's suing Harvard, or in fact, you know, the the actual plaintiffs are Asian Americans who are suing Harvard. He's just advising and bankrolling them. Within the high-achieving Asian American community, which is to say the Asian American community, which is something I would say if I didn't know about the pernicious stereotypes of being the model minority, less pernicious, it's true, than any other stereotype that's out there. But... Stereotypes are stereotypes, and they're bad, and why be inaccurate out of laziness? Anyway, within the high-achieving Asian-American community, they've long believed, and there is some evidence to back them up, that it is harder for Asian-Americans to get into elite schools than non-Asian-Americans or white Americans. They have the grades, the scores, and the rejection letters to prove it. It's gotten so that among Asian-Americans, they deny their own heritage when applying to schools. There's a lot of advice out there. If you're Asian and applying to an Ivy League school, school. Don't include a picture. Don't write about your ethnicity in the essay. Use your Americanized name if that's an option. So the lawsuit 
has unlocked some of the secrets of the Harvard admissions game. And they're not shocking, but they do allow for a wide degree of subjectivity in who Harvard lets in. And some researchers, including one from Duke, looked at their admissions and found that if Harvard didn't lop, that is the internal term for, I guess, culling some of the herd, if they didn't lop certain groups from their admissions, their incoming class would be much, much more Asian. This lawsuit says... If it was just based on that which is measurable, like test scores and grades and some extracurriculars, Harvard would be 51% Asian American. Keep in mind that Asians are a little under 6% of the American population. The current class right now, or the current uh, freshman class, the last class they admitted, is 23% Asian, 16% African American, 12% Latino. So if this were an issue of discriminating against Asians, and maybe it is, there is something to be said for ending the practice. Though researchers claim that Asians' gains would come at the expense of black applicants, which would be something else to consider. Harvard is basically giving some ethnicities a boost to achieve diversity, which they're allowed to do, and which they certainly say is a laudable goal. At the same time, they're giving other ethnicities a non-boost, and Asian Americans are saying not just a non-boost, they're actively suppressing our numbers. Let's put that all aside, or the ethnic part of it, and zoom out a little bit. Because the overall issue is the long odds and high pressure to get into an elite college. To me, this is among the dumbest perennial discussions we have as a nation. Oh, it's not war on Christmas dumb, or Pizzagate dumb, or tax cuts will pay for themselves dumb. But it's treating as a big problem something that is, at worst, a teeny problem. And I actually think it's probably a positive development. So let's go back to 1973, University of California, Berkeley, which is now very selective, which means the rate's below 20%, then added an admission rate of everyone who qualified. Any graduate of a California high school in the top eighth of their class got into Berkeley. Then more people wanted to go to Berkeley, didn't have enough seats, so admission rates began going down, and by the 80s, they were accepting a third of all applicants. This led Berkeley and the university trustees to write a report wringing their hands. What do we do about it? They wrote about, quote, the extraordinary competition for places in Berkeley's freshman class. That was when the admissions was twice as lenient as it is now. But why? Why was this happening? Why were there so many more people applying? Some of its demographic trends. But the big reason is that there are so many more qualified, smarter high school students. They're better prepared. They're more likely to excel at better and better institutions. Back in 1973, there might have been, I don't know, 30,000 truly exceptional high school seniors applying to colleges. By 1990, it might have been 50,000. Let's say now these days it's upwards of 70,000. You always hear this sort of sentiment from the admission officers at top-tier schools with low, low acceptance rates that we have so many candidates who could absolutely excel. It's such a shame there's not a spot for them all. Well, it is a shame, but there is a spot for all these excellent students who can excel at Ivy League schools. It's just at other schools, at schools that were once considered lesser and are still considered lesser than the Ivy Leagues, but are better than they ever were or than the second tier of schools in America used to be. I have heard it said that a school like Harvard or Yale or Princeton, they each accept about 2,000 students a year. I've heard it said that they could reject, and from admissions officers, that they could reject those 2,000, accept the next 2,000, and still have a full school of bright, capable superstars. 
So what it all means is that Yale's this really, really, really excellent school. Of course it is. But the slightly lesser school, let's say Duke or Northwestern, is also really, really excellent. In fact, it's full of students who would have been great students, would still have made Yale, Yale. Then the school's just a little bit down in things like perception in the college rankings, like a school like Notre Dame or Emory. They're still really awesome schools. When I went to Emory, which is seen as selective, they admitted almost half their applicants. There weren't but 40 or 50 schools that were truly selective that rejected more than they accepted. But now so many schools are so full of bright students and we wring our hands like this is a bad thing. American colleges are like one of those cascades of champagne with expensive bubbly flowing out of the top glass and then into the next glass and then into the next glass. The champagne's not getting worse. There's just more of it. It would be one thing if we were a society where choices and options were only limited to those who got into the top school or the second best school. A Japanese kid who doesn't get into Kyoto University or the Tokyo Institute really might have their choices limited. When I taught in Korea, the pressure to get into the Korean version of MIT was so intense because guess what? If you didn't get in, you weren't working for Samsung or LG. But in the U.S., it's not like that. I'm not saying there's not a small premium on the best colleges, but it's small. The U.S. Department of Education has excellent stats, and it has a stat, earnings 10 years after college. Earnings aren't entirely correlative to the success of a school, but when we hear this argument, it's about things like choices and opportunities, so earnings reflect that. Let's say you wanted to go to one of these top 10 schools that admit less than 10% of applicants, Brown. Very hard to get in. They accept 9% of applicants. They have SAT requirements of like 730 and 740. If you went to Brown 10 years later, the average salary, 61300 So let's say 9% chance of getting in. Let's, uh, let's increase that to a 14% chance of getting in. Amherst. Well, if you went to Amherst, which I still think is this really excellent school, your salary wouldn't be 61300 After 10 years at Amherst, it would only be... 59700 And by the way, Amherst, the, in the actual cost paid, because they have very good financial aid, the average student at Amherst is paying 9000 less a year. So overall, it's probably smarter to go to the easier school to get into. Colgate's a private school in upstate New York. It has a 29% admission rate. It's a very hard school to get into. Ten years out, its graduates are making $61,300. Well, let's say you couldn't get into that private school in New York. Let's say you could get into the private school in New York that's down the road. That's much, much easier to get into. Syracuse, which accepts half and rejects half. Well, after 10 years, your earnings would be 58400 So within $3,000, 10 years after school. And this was, this was the best one I found. University of Chicago, very hard to get into. It accepts only 8.4% of applicants. 10 years out of University of Chicago, the average graduate is making $65,500. Let's say you didn't get into Chicago. You probably didn't get into your safe school. You had to go to the state school. University of Illinois at Champaign. Speaking of Champaign, guess what? Average salary, 57600 Is it really such a gigantic difference? I've got a dozen of these. I'll lay one more on you. The difference between Notre Dame and Villanova in acceptance rate... Notre Dame accepts 19% of its students. Villanova accepts 47%. This is the Roman Catholic subdivision I'm talking about here. And yet, salary after graduation, Villanova earns more by 3000 Some of that is probably the difference between the Northeast and the Midwest. But still, you're killing yourself to go to Notre Dame. You only get into Villanova. 
So the problem of being rejected from elite schools, it might be a bummer for the individual, but the fact that college admissions are so selective reflects something good that's going on in society. We're filling schools that were once okay with students that are great, and we're making those schools great because of the students. And what's the problem with that? I know why it gets written about because people who read the New York Times or listen to Slate want their kids to go to the best schools. And I get that. But this is not a societal problem. If you want to find the victims with the greatest life outcomes who are victims but will still be okay, let's look at all the kids who got rejected at Harvard but still had the grades and SAT score to get into Harvard. I can imagine the closing argument in this upcoming trial. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury. Look at the faces of my clients. Look how bright those faces are. Look how shining and happy they are. They have their future in front of them. And do you know what this school did? It did not allow them in. And now, and if you need to take out a Kleenex, you can do so. I'm going to tell you what is going to happen to my clients. They're going to have to go to Cornell. I rest my case. Putting aside any racial unfairness that Harvard may be responsible for, how bad is their life going to turn out if they get into a school that's slightly worse than Harvard? I think they'll be great. Sure, if they went to Harvard, they might be in a position to get a job at Goldman Sachs and have to work 20-hour days to make partner. And then once they do, they'd have to fight to get into the most expensive restaurants in New York and knife each other to get a place in the Hamptons and then back to the barricades in 20 years as they fight to get the next generation into extremely competitive preschools. What I'm saying is that Harvard rejection might be the only thing saving you from a life of struggle and striving and angst. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader produced the gist. They like to argue that Magic the Gathering is not a lifestyle brand. It's just some cool-looking cards, you know. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He has long argued that Long John Silver's is the lifestyle choice for Arthur Treacher patrons who just long for the sea. The gist, not so much a lifestyle brand as an interlocking set of beliefs with one simple notion at its core, and that is boysenberry is unacceptable as a pancake topping. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.